Hi, and welcome to Climate Tracker Weekly again. Each week we share stories that matter to young climate journalists around the world. I'm your host, Chris Wright from Climate Tracker. Now let's head over to Nairobi, known to some as the Green City of the Sun. What a great phrase. There we'll meet Kevin Lanzalo. He's a young environmental researcher who is one of our wildcard fellows. He's trying to build up his experience in the world of journalism and make a real impact in his home country of Kenya. A young researcher trying to make his way in the journalism space, and it's a great reflection on everything going on in Kenya, Nairobi, and what lies ahead. Hi, Kevin. How are we doing? Hi, Chris. I'm doing real well. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's a rainy morning here in Nairobi. Uh, it's been raining since around 3 a.m. And how are you doing? Good, good. I had to, I had to think that you were awake at 3 a.m. kind of watching the rain come in. But, uh, but it's, no, I'm, I'm calling you from Sydney and it's, it's all good here. We don't have any rain or anything like that. How is it right now being in Kenya COVID is all around the world. Uh, has life kind of changed dramatically for you as well? Yeah, I mean, um, we're now in our second lockdown uh, in Nairobi. Uh, it's, uh, you can't move in, you can't move out. Uh, and so it's a matter of um, adjusting and uh, adhering to the Ministry of Health guidelines. But as, as a journalist, it's also a moment to reflect and see how best I can move on with my work, um, considering the prevailing circumstances. I can't go to the field uh, as I would want. I can't um, schedule interviews and such kind of things. But at the same time, I still feel that I have a role to continue doing my stories and telling the world uh, what I feel they need to to hear. Ah, that's great. Well, I'm glad you still have that kind of sense of duty and, and, and maybe a, a, a kind of a bit of optimism built in there. Um, Kevin, thank you so much for joining us. This is obviously the, the Climate Tracker kind of weekly podcast. We like to interview young journalists from around the world each week. Um, and, and I'm so glad that we can chat with you today. Most of the time we ask people to introduce themselves with a pretty simple question, um, asking them to actually tell their story. Uh, so, Kevin, I'd love to do the same with you. What is your story? Well, I am a freelance environmental journalist, uh, a researcher and an ecologist from Kenya. I was born in Nairobi, spent uh, a lot of my childhood here in Nairobi, but then went to the countryside uh, on the border of Kenya and Uganda to do most of my studies. Um, that is the upper primary level and high school. Um, and then came back to a place called Nakuru for my undergraduate studies. I have never been in a journalism class per se, but I have gained much of the experience uh, through uh, trainings and, um, and mentorships. So in uh, 2015, just after undergraduate studies, I started as an environmental blogger, just writing stories that I was passionate about, uh, climate smart farming, youth and environmental policy, and this kind of things. And the response was amazing. The reception was great. 
2019, the blog was nominated for the best uh, environmental blog of the year. Um, so in 2019, I did a shift from environmental blogging and that's when I started um, climate reporting. I mean, one afternoon we went out swimming with my cousin uh, and the beach was just full of plastic. So I took out my phone and I was, my cousin was holding it and I was pretending to be the reporter uh, of the situation. Uh, later, I posted the short video on my Instagram and my, my uh, friends were like, uh, this is amazing. So I started doing environmental stories from there. In 2020, I was lucky enough to be trained on climate reporting from Climate Tracker. Uh, before that, I was doing stories for other media outlets, mostly the Nature of Cities magazine. And uh, later in 2020, uh, the opportunity that Climate Tracker presented uh, gave me some few, some funds to do a story. So I did a story on uh, women who are doing climate smart farming in a place called Machakos, which is like two hours from Nairobi. And that gave me another opportunity to do a story for Asparagus magazine on women who are doing the same projects, but uh, in a different region in Kisumu. So uh, this year I got into the Climate Adaptation Summit newsroom as a young reporter where I was again trained and then we covered the Climate Adaptation Summit uh, 2021. And now I've been lucky again to be part of the Climate Tracker Media uh, Fellowship. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. That was, that was a longer introduction than we normally get, to be honest, um, but, uh, but, but very interesting. So you, you didn't come to journalism from a kind of a natural instinct for stories, a natural instinct for investigations. You came to it from that kind of environmental side of things. Did you study environmental science or environmental subjects in university? Yeah, that's true. I studied wildlife conservation. And, and what is, you know, wh when you, you, you come from that type of background, what is it like when you meet journalists who came from a journalism background? Do you find that, you know, are you surprised with their their knowledge of in like the environmental side of their stories, or you may be surprised at the lack of knowledge that they have um, around, you know, environmental stories. Yeah, first of all, I envy their journalistic skills. I mean, they are eloquent, they know their ways around crafting stories and telling stories in ways that people can easily uh, follow. But then uh, there is also a clear gap in most of the stories um, between the actual knowledge of environment and um, what the journalist actually either feels or is trying to write about. So I get this feeling that they are mostly trying to rely on the uh, sources um, or the, the people they get the stories from. Uh, to tell this to, this to tell these stories, so I have an understanding that it could be difficult for them to to follow these stories or to know what exactly um, is happening in terms of um, deeper environmental issues that they would really want to cover. So there is that both sen that sense of kind of envying their skill set, but also 
it, it doesn't sound like pity to me, but it does sound like, you know, a, a bit of an understanding that there might be some areas that, that you kind of can naturally start to craft a story around because you know some of the background, um, whereas they might need to do some of the more kind of uh, some of the homework behind it before being able to jump in. Have you ever found that your ability to tell a neutral story um, has been challenging because you might have maybe even felt like you knew more than one of your sources? Yeah, I'm, that happens. Um, and a number of times I've found myself uh, being on the border of telling a story from the perspective of what I really know and that of which this people that I'm speaking to um, either know or are trying to say. And that is the hardest thing when you're an environmentalist and at the same time a journalist. You tend to always have this push that you want to tell stories from what you actually know. But then conventional journalism, I mean, has always stipulated that you remove yourself from the story, from the center of the story, and let the story be told from your sources perspective, which could be a difficult thing to do. So yes, uh, it's true that sometimes uh, I, I found it difficult to draw the line between journalism and uh, my personal uh, knowledge or, or opinion of, this, of, of the environmental stories I'm covering. I guess it would be especially hard when you are interviewing sources that you know, not only have a a slightly different, but like a dramatically different perspective on a story that, that you would have, you know, you might have a particular expertise on, on, on wetlands, for example, and, and you might be interviewing like a developer who's building apartments in that wetland complex who, who just tells you things like, oh, it's, it's not going to cause a problem. And you might have a, a very, very different perspective on that and, and start an argument, I can imagine. Have you ever found yourself in that type of scenario where you're arguing with a source even during an interview? Okay, I tend not to try start arguments with my sources most of the time because... It's probably um, sensible. Yeah, it, it takes a process to, to get these people to talk to you. But then, yes, it's true that sometimes when you're covering stories, let's say, on, on energy or stuff like this, uh, the developers are always on the defensive side of of things telling you how many jobs, for example, this project is going to create for the local community, uh, how it's going to open up the local infrastructure, but they are largely deviating from the questions that you really want them to answer. For example, the deeper environmental uh, impact of their projects and how this will in turn sooner or later affect the livelihood of this very people they are trying to to show that they care about. So yeah, sometimes you feel like you get what they're saying, but you really don't get what you are looking for as a journalist. And that places you in a very difficult situation on whether to include their quotes in your stories or just not. And you know, thing about journalism is that at the end of the day, as a reporter, when you're writing a story, you have the obligation, or rather you, you, you are entitled to choose which of the quotes uh, you want to use in your stories. And so there is this conflict between what they actually said and what you really feel should enhance your story if you, you quote it. So that has been 
my experience before. Absolutely. And, and I'd love to kind of learn a little bit more about some of these stories that you have written. What was, say, the first environmental story you tried to write about? I've always been passionate about young people and their engagement in this climate action. My very first story was on how a group of young people are using climate, climate act, activism to, to drive change uh, in their local communities. Were they based in Nairobi as well? No. So this is a group of young people that were based in uh, Busia, uh, where I told you uh, I spent part of my life uh, living there. So these young people were mobilizing themselves and um, creating uh, sort of youth groups that were doing all manner of things from tree planting to uh, cleanups to talking to their local policymakers on climate issues uh, to taking to the streets to express the things that they felt were not right in terms of conservation, um, pollution, plastics, and this kind of things. So I covered that, okay, I wrote about the story and on my blog as an environmental blogger, and it was shared by another uh, kind of big organization called Coalition Wild. And uh, I think that was my, my very first end of big story <laughs> that I did. And how did those activists do? Okay, so since then, um, that was in, I think, 20, 2015, 2016, uh, when I covered the story, uh, their story. Uh, since then, there has been uh, a local organization that has been formed in the area um, where they are still going on with their their work. Uh, I understand that recently they introduced um, biking, like like a bike club, just trying to educate the general public on the need to uh, impress greener ways of, of, of travel, sustainable modes of travel, and also uh, try to push the local government to consider having uh, like roadside pavements for for bicycle users. Uh, they also use this biking uh, like uh, on each, each weekend and um, public holiday uh, to do some advocacy stuff so they can just like uh, cycle for 15 kilometers raising awareness on plastic pollution or these kind of things that are affecting their communities. And looking back on some of those early stories, most journalists, obviously are, are kind of in this constant perpetual learning process that they're, they're always improving. Um, and, and I imagine, you know, you yourself as someone who kind of is learning in the job or on the job um, are probably kind of also looking to kind of continue to improve your craft. And, and looking back at some of those early stories, you might feel like you were making some mistakes early on that, you know, you look back and you might even get a little bit embarrassed about uh, why was I writing like this or why was I writing like that? What were some of the early mistakes that you feel you were making early on that now you kind of look back on and think, oh, man, I can't believe I used to do that? <laughs> a lot. Actually, I laugh at all, almost all my stories. <laughs> okay. I, 
can't believe they were written by me. I mean, like, I'm always like, who wrote these stories? But then I envy the passion that drove me to write this, those stories. I mean, at that time, uh, not very few young Kenyans were getting environmental stories out. And some of the mistakes that I did were like, I was writing these stories from a very personal opinionated angle and everything was from the way I look at it and not really from a holistic perspective. Of course, I didn't interview anyone. I was just writing what I feel like, which I think to some extent was, was some freedom, which is not really found in the newsrooms uh, because I could write anything I felt like. But then there was nobody to actually edit my stories. And so they, they, they went out with all the, the mistakes. Uh, I guess some of my audiences my, my could uh, just clearly see that this guy is, this guy is, is, is not is an amateur in this. And also how to craft the stories themselves from building up your story to telling it to people to getting uh, reliable sources. I mean, the things that I do nowadays to using um, media like images and footages to support your stories. These are things that I didn't do when I was starting because I didn't have that journalistic training uh, at that time. Uh, and also just the modes of sharing out my, my stories uh, mm. to reach a greater audience, choosing out my audience, knowing what they need, what they want, was a whole lot of uh, things that I didn't consider then. You then have kind of partnered your journalism with your own environmental activism. Um, and I understand you've, you've been particularly active in the field of biodiversity conservation. Could you explain a little bit of that? First of all, as I mentioned before, I have an environmental, I mean, academic background on that. In 2017, I co-founded a youth network called the Kenyan Youth Biodiversity Network out of the frustration that young people were largely being left out in these discussions that matter in regards to conservation in Kenya. And so we started this with my friend two people, just me and a friend uh, called Marianne, uh, bringing young people together and raising their voices, uh, especially in policy frameworks. And so through time, it has grown to be actually the, the largest youth organization in Kenya that is centered on policy issues, but also like, won a couple of awards and also that an organization that is really deeply rooted in policy advocacy and um, highlighting the need for meaningful youth engagement uh, in policy formulation and uh, implementation in Kenya. And so actually even now we are in the midst of organizing a youth consultation meeting uh, that will take place from the 16th to the 19th of April. On the 5th of April, we, we had another virtual consultation. We are uh, taking input 
the voices of young people on the conventional biological diversity, that is the CBD's uh, new policy framework. So the CBD is organizing the conference of parties to, be, to happen later in 2021, in October 2021. And they have a, a new proposed policy framework called the Post-2020 Global Biodiversity Framework. So our role as a youth organization is to try and bring the voices of young people, specifically young Kenyans, uh, to this process and say, hey, this is how we want the next global biodiversity framework to look like. We want our political leaders to adopt such and such uh, approaches in conserving biodiversity, but also engaging young people. So we will condense these voices into a youth policy uh, brief and present it to the national focal point of the CBD and use it to lobby other entities towards adoption of the same. That's really great. And, and a lot of people I know are kind of living these uh, really interesting nuanced lives, uh, both within their field and within their craft, if you like, um, their field of interest in their craft. Um, so it's, it's really fascinating to hear that you are doing all of that work and trying to do some journalism in addition to that. What do you feel, generally speaking, about young Kenyans and their approach or appreciation of biodiversity? Kenya is a country that is kind of world famous for safaris, but what do you feel about young Kenyans and, and their own appreciation for Kenya's biodiversity? I mean, that's really a great question. And in my own view, it's growing. Young people are uh, continuously uh, appreciating the role that biodiversity plays um, in various ways. I mean, in their lives, but also in our country as large. As you mentioned, we are known for, for tourism and safaris, but these things don't happen in space. Actually, biodiversity is a very big uh, sustainer, if I can use that word, um, for wildlife uh, tourism. So without conserving our biodiversity, then we are we will stand to lose um, the image of being a wild hotspot or a wild uh, tourism hub, and so most young people, as myself, have uh, the ones I have inter interacted with most, uh, have taken these environmental conservation courses, for example or they are not, they don't have a background in environmental conservation, but they have an interest to know what's happening uh, in regards to, to, to this. And also because movements like ours are coming up, we have like several youth-led organizations um, that are talking about uh, environmental issues some out of the need to talk about it, but some out of the experience um, based on the climate uh, change, um, impacts of climate change that are happening in the country in the moment, which are very pronounced and everybody can fear them. And so young people are coming out strongly to try and find solutions uh, to some of these challenges. And I'm very happy to see that the majority of young people are gaining the momentum to to conserve 
or take action towards halting the loss of biodiversity in Kenya. Do you think that there is an added challenge in a, a country like Kenya that doesn't necessarily exist in, in countries in Europe, in countries like the United States or Australia, where economically speaking, people are living generally a little bit easier. Um, in Kenya, I can imagine that there are so many young people kind of competing to, to get you know, these kind of great jobs. I see Nairobi was recently voted the most innovative city in Africa. I, I can imagine there's so much emphasis on on getting that kind of great big city job that, that maybe there is this kind of um, this conflict uh, really of, of trying to get people to appreciate um, what isn't that big city job, which usually relates to biodiversity. I'm just wondering if you ever reflect on some of the broader challenges of, in, of exciting people about biodiversity in Kenya that might not necessarily exist in other places. Yeah, so as you mentioned, uh, Kenya is um, a country in Africa, uh, largely in the global south. And as a developing country, we have unique challenges um, that are not experienced in the developed world. I mean, it starts from priorities, um, because when you are growing up uh, in, let's say, a family of seven, and you're the only person who has gone to school, then you have this larger responsibility of finding a job that's rewarding enough to help you sustain not just yourself and your immediate family, but other dependents as well. Uh, and also at a broader level, when you're talking about pol uh, our politicians and government systems, uh, because we in the global South have our own challenges, you they tend to prioritize issues differently from the developed world. Uh, I just saw that the EU uh, the other day uh, passed the climate, climate change uh, to be one of their priority areas, same to the US. But then you find that in Kenya, we have bigger problems uh, that our government will, for example, prioritize. Are we looking at health? We're looking at security. We're looking at all manner of things apart from climate change because we do not have the privilege of having the, all the money or to set aside for climate action. And this trickles down to young people. So when the government prioritizes health, for example, it means that most of its budget will go to health, which also means that they will want to employ more people from that perspective. If it is education, they will want to employ more teachers. And young people, if they see that there's an opportunity to, there's an easy, it is easier to work in the education sector or health sector than to find a job in the environmental sector, then they tend to, um, let's say, take up learning opportunities that will prepare them for this. So the challenge basically is to try and see how we can mainstream uh, biodiversity and environment into all the jobs that uh, which are now there. If we are able to create meaningful rewarding green jobs irrespective of the, of the industry, then wherever this person or this young person lands, uh, they will find it important to still care about uh, and the environment. You know, the ultimate aim really of 
of the environmental movement would be that there wouldn't need to be a choice um, between kind of, you know, um, what you can do to, to bring money for your family and, and for your community and, and what you can do to kind of contribute to, to environmental sustainability. Um, obviously, I think still in most places in the world, there, there is a massive choice and that choice is very difficult to make for most people. Um, it's also a choice for governance. And, and as someone who is now both embedded in, in, in journalism and in activism, what is your perspective on, on the Kenyan government and, and kind of their approach to, to climate change and their approach to biodiversity? Do you think that they are, you know, balancing those needs well between, you know, the economic needs um, of, of kind of getting everyone in Kenya jobs and, and opportunities? versus the, you know, the environmental needs that you're obviously aware of. Uh, how do you think they are, they're doing on that balance? The Kenyan government uh, is not doing enough, in, in, in my opinion, to mainstream conservation into jobs and other economic priorities. It's quite evident that um, certain things, or when you're talking about things like health, security, uh, education, they're ranked way above environment in, in Kenya, in Kenya's, uh, I mean, list of priorities. It, the, the conservation ministry, the Ministry of Environment and other co conservation related work is one of the least funded um, departments in, in Kenya's government. I'm talking about less than 2% uh, of a budget going into um, grassroots conservation initiatives. On the flip side, I think we have very nice policies that um, the world can borrow a leaf from. Um, our policy on single-use uh, plastic bags, for example, uh, our policies on wildlife uh, poaching, uh, we have very nice um, policies. But then that's only the beginning. That's only the beginning uh, to me. Uh, it's, it goes beyond just creating very nice policies to actually showing that you as a government are deeply concerned about what's happening. I mean, there are stories about floods. Our, all our Rifty Valley lakes are now flooding. People are being displaced. Just last week, there were like hundreds of flamingos that were found dead in like, like Nakuru. Uh, so these are some of the things that I think the government should use as a wake-up call to now start prioritizing climate change. Because what happens is if you neglect climate change, you're just shooting yourself in the foot. Uh, you you may be giving a lot of money to healthcare, but if people are being displaced by floods and they are sick because they have uh, been uh, displaced and exposed, then you are just like, whatever you're doing is counterproductive. Uh, if you're supporting farming and farmers are being, they are, they are, their farms are being attacked by desert locusts, then you see that it just comes around like, you're doing nothing. So I don't feel that the government has done enough and I feel there's still a lot and a lot to, to do. 
But I also feel that young people should be placed at the center of building better. Well, I definitely agree with you there. Um, I'd love to ask a few particular questions around, um, you know, you mentioned Kenya's stance on, on climate change. It seems that publicly um, President Kenyatta is quite open about talking about climate change. Last month, he, he asked other African heads of states to kind of get a common stance on climate change that they can take forward to the UN climate talks this year. Um, and I would say kind of Kenya in general is, is usually one of the more vocal countries in the continent um, when, you know, publicly discussing and shaping policies around climate change. And yet you kind of obviously feel that, that there's a lot more that could be done. Um, I mean, what do you feel about the, the leadership from, from the kind of heads of the government? Do you feel like you know, they're happy to basically say things, um, but maybe not back it up? Or do you feel like maybe there is a lot of uh, wheels turning in the background as well? I just feel like there is a disconnect between what we, the government really wants to do and what it actually does uh, on the ground. I mean, I had our president talk on at the climate adaptation summit as i mentioned before i was a youth reporter in that summit and yes he gave a couple of very insightful remarks and just calling the world for to, to action so in my opinion it could be and because we end up making all these nice policies it could be that the country is just um really willing to do this but maybe doesn't have the capacity to fully execute its wishes. And if maybe they had some sort of support um, in regards to that front, they would do more than just um, enacting nice policies and stuff like that. But as a country also having other challenges like corruption, uh, which 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 doesn't spare any department and climate uh, climate and environment is is one of the victims. So our president in the past has shown uh, very nice uh, goodwill. Uh, there's a time he gave out like two billion Kenya shillings just to do tree planting across the the country, but I'm not sure how. Um, that really went down because we didn't see much of of the trees um, being planted here at the grassroots level as we would have expected. So I guess the president means well, but uh, he may not have the capacity or maybe the money or maybe the goodwill to support his wishes. And I hope okay. that that changes very soon because time is ticking for, for climate action. Yeah, no, I, I definitely kind of, I can understand that perspective. Um, obviously, it doesn't sound like you're, you're kind of staunchly against the president, but it sounds like you, you kind of have hope that there could be more to come and that there might have been more that was done. I think kind of the, the policy you alluded to was the, the kind of 10-year action plan to try and increase tree cover by about 10% over the next uh, decade. But, uh, but obviously, you know, there's probably many people who would say that 
it could increase by a lot more. And I'm sure you're, I'm guessing you're probably one of those, Kevin. I think that let's first get to the 10%. Okay. All right. Fair enough. We've been doing fairly well in regards to that. Uh, so if we are about 6 7% right now, we can get to the 10%. I mean, what has been happening at the national and international level, and uh, critics have always said that we set very big ambitious targets that we are never able to achieve. And this, is, this has also been the crit- criticism that the CBD has failed, has, has faced that we... They, they launched the IG targets in 2011, which was super ambitious, and almost um, none of them was uh, like fully achieved. So let's set these achievable milestones one step at a time. If it is 10%, uh, let's do the 10%. I saw the other day that the ministry launched a wildlife strategy 2030 and they're talking about youth engagement in that. Let's first see how that happens. Now, when we see that they're engaging youth in implementing this strategy, it's when we'll now sit down again and say, okay, let's now face, let's now move in this direction. So mm-hmm. I'd be happy if we first achieve this 10%. Yeah, that's fair enough. And obviously you are, you're talking about the Convention on Bio, uh, Biodiversity. Um, which is not just a Kenyan policy, it's, a, it's an international policy, but, but certainly you're right, there was a, a failed on almost all of the goals that were set as of kind of last year, which was a bit of a disappointment. But uh, there's another conference coming up at the end of this year, so there's a, there's a chance for a, a whole new range of goals and a whole kind of a new opportunity to start afresh, I hope. Um, I, I wanted to ask you about the, the Lamu coal plant now for... I'm sure, you know, people who don't know specifically much about Kenya might not know about that project. So if you could maybe introduce it to us with a little bit of the background. But my understanding is that this is one of, this was one of the kind of the big highlights for me, at least of 2020, seeing uh, a kind of a, a big project that seemed inevitable, a big coal plant that was planned in this kind of incredible um, ecosystem basically get uh, overturned by community uh, objection. Is that the full story? And, and can you maybe kind of help me fill some of those gaps and, and describe that particular project and what it, what it kind of says about, you know, Kenya and some of the, the ways in which environmental challenges are being, uh, are being met? Yeah, so it's a proposed project as you you mentioned it didn't take off thanks to community um, being against it and just uh, lobbying activism around it so it was a uh, a station that was um, proposed to deliver over 1050 megawatts of coal forward uh, energy and sitting on about 865 acres of land at the cost of Kenya. But then the ecological implications of this plant um, were going to be grave uh, and people were not largely involved from the onset of this project, which uh, is part of the reason why they, they opposed it. Um, and so 
it was supposed it was supported by the government as um, one of the key economic pillars of the Kenyan coast. I mean, just opening up the lo- the coastal infrastructure, employing more people, uh, adding more energy to to our grid and stuff like that. But people were more concerned about the health implication of health implication and ecological implication of this. And so local organizations uh, came strongly against it. Uh, activists went to court uh, to understand why this project was happening without the involvement of local communities, local indigenous community, but also with the evident environmental and health uh, effects that would occur from it. So the environmental court uh, stopped it, which made one of the biggest uh, like financials uh, to, to pull out uh, of this. But then it's a bit controversial. Uh, it's actually very controversial. Uh, because of the different uh, varying interests that were channeled to to towards this project, so we don't really know. As 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 I speak, I can't really say with certainty if this project was totally called off, or if it will, at some point will take off again. But it says a lot about local communities and their uh, zeal to protect their rights, to stand for what they think is is against their interests, and also to protect their natural and local ecosystems. And does it, you know, my understanding is that it's it's been, its license has been revoked by, as a result of this kind of community objection, um, but it's not kind of totally cancelled yet. There's still a chance that it might, continue or it might kind of resurface um what's your kind of latest understanding yeah so it was a massive project uh as as i mentioned before and if it has to continue uh the key financials like the industrial and commercial bank of china uh the national government of kenya and all the parties that were interested in financing this have to come back uh, on board which I don't think will happen uh, because of the negative uh, image that has already been created out there. And also because the government does not, wa- does not want to get in a situation where it looks like it's going against its own words. I mean, the environmental court is an arm of our national government. It is the one that stopped this project. So if we get to a situation where the government gets into conflict with itself over a project, then that will look really ugly to the local residents. And some of the local leaders from that area were also against the project. So I don't think I don't see it coming back into action under the current regime, which ends in 2022. But you never know. Uh, maybe the next regime might come in with a new set of strategies and how to revive this plant. Interesting. Definitely a space to watch um, and, and definitely a, a kind of a, a story that 
sounds like it's still got a lot to unfold. Um, Kevin, I'd love to talk about your kind of current journalism, what you're doing now, what you're planning to do in the future. What is the story you're currently working on? Right now I'm doing my, I just finished doing the final draft of my last climate tracker media mentorship story. I was um, in a place called Kibera, which is one of the largest slums in Africa. And I was talking to this young man called Kevin Muller, who is using art to recycle plastics as his contribution towards fighting climate change. Then um, I'm, looking also, I'm also looking forward to working on and short doc documentary on plastic pollution uh, at the cost, at the Kenyan cost, and um, also documenting uh, another story in a place called uh, Kisumu for, for Zovu in the coming months. And is there a story that, you know, in your future life, I, I think most journalists have a story they wish they would write one day, a story that they, you know, if they had unlimited time and unlimited energy and all the funding was secure, this would be the story that they would love to, to write or love to cover. Do you have a story like that? And, and if so, what is it? Yes, I have a story like that. I mean, living in a world where illegal wildlife trade is becoming rampant and actually one of the world's like greatest sources of illegal money, I would like to see how this industry is playing out um, in Kenyan context. I have a feeling that uh, it is happening. And so given unlimited amount of money and time, I like to explore uh, illegal, either logging or poaching syndicates in Kenya, uh, particularly in the key conservation areas. We're talking about the Kakamega Forest. Uh, we're talking about uh, Lake Nakuru National Park, uh, Savo, Amboseli, and maybe the Masai Mara. So, this, this kind of a story that I really would love to pursue one day. Well, I certainly hope you get the chance to pursue that. I, I, I mean, I, I think that, you know, COVID was another moment where a, a lot of people around the world reflected on, on this wildlife trade, which, which most of the time, most people don't really think about. And, and you know, most people don't even know exists. Um, but I think the start of COVID was one of those moments where a lot of people were kind of, you know, suddenly intrigued by, by this existence of, of a global wildlife trade. Um, I, I, I remember when the story was, you know, of the origins of COVID was discussing that pangolins might be involved and bats mm -hmm. might be involved and it all might be kind of centering around wet markets in China and things. And, and, and being someone who's lived in Malaysia for, for most of the last decade, there was a lot of discussion around the pangolin trade for the first time in a long time. And, uh, yeah. and I, I certainly feel like there, there was some more discussion about global wildlife trafficking for the first time in a while. Um, and, and I think that that's an awesome area to get involved in. And, and I really hope you get to dive into that story one day, um, hopefully sooner rather than later as well, um, because uh, it's obviously something that's, you know, at, at some level, you know, going quite crazy right now. Um, and, I, and I hope you get to kind of dive into it sooner. Um, and, and maybe kind of highlight some of the networks that are existing in Kenya at the moment. Um,
because I think that would be very exciting to read and, and, and maybe kind of, you know, make that change that you're looking for. Kevin, yeah. thank you so much for chatting with us. Um, any last thoughts or, or any kind of words of advice for other young journalists, maybe in Kenya, maybe around the world who might be listening? So I feel that um, young environmentalists from across the world have stories that they want to tell uh, because they're living in times when we have to be bold about these issues. If we really want something to be done, and I think media is one of the perfect tools through which these stories can be told. And as you have heard from my story, you can just start from where you are and you can start getting what you feel like should be had out there using any online or media tool that is accessible to you. So start telling the stories, uh, start inspiring people, start calling for action start challenging your governments and pushing them to take action uh, in whatever way you you can. And um, yeah, you never know how it will turn. You never know. And all the best. Just be bold, uh, take action, and believe in yourself. Well, I think that's pretty great advice to end on. So thank you so much, Kevin, for, for this chat. And, and thank you so much for your work. Thank you so much, Chris, for having me. It's been a pleasure talking to you this morning. And that's it for the show this week. I'm Chris Wright, and this is Climate Tracker Weekly. For comments, suggestions, and feedback, you can email us at podcast.climatetracker.org. If you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts, kindly leave us a comment. It, it helps new listeners to find us. And if you want to subscribe to our newsletter and visit our website, please do. Can't hurt, right? Join us again next time for another episode of Climate Tracker Weekly, and thanks for coming back. We're glad to have you.